Well, beloved, we've come to the last service in this series of gospel meetings. And it certainly has been my pleasure to be with you these few days and to speak concerning the Word of God. A lady asked me one time, she said, uh, well, when the preachers come and preach for us, said it is so encouraging. But she said, I often wondered who encourages the preachers. Well, I don't know about others, but I can say from my own experience that, uh, that when I see people consistently attending the services and uh, doing the things that uh, we believe the New Testament teaches them to do, that's the thing that encourages me and, and encourages me uh, to go on. I want to read from the passages that we have on the board here. I'd like to read first uh, Exodus 9 and verse 16. And in this place, we hear uh, the Lord saying to Moses, And in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And uh, then the passage in the 14th chapter of Exodus and verse 30, which says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of, Egypt, uh, of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. That will be the introduction for our reading tonight, for our study. We've had a marvelous day today, and it's just been all so thrilling and so wonderful. I don't know how the meeting today could have turned out any better unless we had seen numerous people obeying the gospel. That would probably have been the only thing that could have made it better. But uh, it's wonderful to see the house almost fill this afternoon and people waiting expectantly to hear the Word of God. So many times I can only wish that I were capable of uh, supplying that need better. But nonetheless, uh, we are met this evening to worship God, to study His Word, and to call upon His name. So at this time, let us go to God in prayer. In Exodus 14 and 19, we read these words, And Israel saw the Egyptians dead, upon the seashore. I believe that probably is verse 30. This is a rather ghastly and gruesome sight. And the soldiers of the once proud army of Egypt are lying dead upon the seashore. There are all sorts of positions, these dead men, some have their heads pillowed peacefully upon their arms as if asleep. Others have their faces half buried in the sand. Others still lie prone upon their backs with bits of seaweed in their hair and their sightless errors staring in terror at nothing. They're very much alike, these corpses. But there's one corpse that is different. And when we look at his rich costume in which he is dressed, we're able to discern the difference. Look at the bejeweled fingers. There's no crown now upon its brow. There's no scepter in that nerveless hand. 
Yes, it's easy to guess that this corpse, this pocket that death has turned outside and emptied, was once a king. Yes, this is the body of Pharaoh, the one-time ruler of all the land of Egypt. But here he lies today among the meanest of his soldiers. He is sprawled in unkingly fashion upon his face as if the sea had just spit him out in sheer nausea and disgust. And now comes the big question that we want to answer this afternoon. How came this famous Egyptian here? He was once the king, you know. He was ruler over the proudest and the greatest nation in the world at that time. And here we find him dead. He died away from home. He died a violent death. So I propose this afternoon to hold an inquest and uh, concern ourselves with how he came to die. He didn't leave Egypt and march into the Red Sea for no purpose at all. He never intended that life should end thus, nor is he here because his enemy Israel has proven stronger than himself. What's the cause? The question is answered by the voice of God, and we read it from Exodus 9 and 16. For this cause have I raised thee up, that I might show forth my power in thee. Have you noticed what this strange text says and implies? Without the least equivocation, it says that God raised this man Pharaoh up, that he might show his power in him. And that purpose he accomplished. This piece of rottenness has not been thrown upon the seashore by the hand of man. As we look at him, we see in him a monument of the power of God. And strange to say, he's not the power, the monument of God's power to save, but rather the power of God to utterly wreck and destroy. And in his destruction, God tells us that he has served his purpose. And I believe that you will agree with me that this is an amazing statement. The teaching seems to be that God raised this man up that he might glorify himself by making a complete and utter wreck of him. And I wonder if that could be the truth. We agree, I suppose, all of us who believe in the Bible, that God has a plan for every life. In fact, all nature tells us of a planning God. All revelation teaches that God is the kind of a God who plans. And we have the message direct from the lips of the Lord as well when he said, As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. But in admitting that God has plans for every life, can we believe that he plans for some to go wrong and some to go right? Can we believe that he plans for one to become a Judas and the other to become a John? Is it the purpose of God that one shall develop into a Moses while another develops into that miserable, distorted wreck that we call Pharaoh? Well, in other words, is Judas as much a part of the plan as John? If so, let me tell you folks, we're of all men most miserable because we have a wicked God who consigns one man to one end and another man to a different end at his choosing and disposal. But we know that's not the case. Listen, God never planned that any man should go wrong. The Bible tells us 
over in the letter of the Apostle Peter that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's the eternal lover. He loved Moses, but he loved Pharaoh no less. And Judas was as dear to God's heart, I believe, as was the Apostle John. And whatever failure they made of their lives, whatever failure you and I make of our lives, we do not make because God forces us to do so. We do it because of our own willfulness, because of our wicked rebellion against God. In other words, though God plans your life and mine, God, of course, cannot in the very nature of things force us to enter into His plan. You who are fathers and mothers this afternoon realize that. Many parents have beautiful plans for their children only to realize that those children are going to despise those plans because our children are not ourselves. They have independent wills. God has given them free moral agency. And so they have the capacity for entering into our purposes for them and thus bringing us joy unspeakable. And they also have the capacity for despising those purposes and breaking our hearts. But then how do we explain this strange passage of Scripture? For this cause have I raised thee up that I might show forth my power in thee. Because it is a fact that this death in the Red Sea was not an accidental death. In fact... This corpse here upon the beach is not here by lucky chance. The king was flung here by the power of a disappointed and grieved and rejected God. And he lies here dead upon the shore according to the deliberate plan and purpose of God. But while this is true, we need to keep this big fact in mind. Even though Pharaoh lies here according to the purpose and the plan of God, this was not God's highest purpose for him. But Pharaoh resisted and rejected every noble and worthy purpose that God had in his life. And by his own rebellion, he made it impossible for God to realize any purpose in him save the last and the worst. Do you remember that story over in the book of Jeremiah who one day went down to the potter's house and uh, the prophet Jeremiah said to him arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause thee to hear my word so Jeremiah went down and he heard the message he arrived within the potter's house and there were three objects that immediately drew his attention there was a man working there was the potter and there was the instrument with which he worked which was the potter's wheel and there was a substance upon which he worked, which was the clay. And in the potter's hand, we're told, the clay was misshapen and unsightly. The cup was not yet finished in the potter's hand, but there was a place where it was finished, and that was in the mind of the potter. The potter could already see the finished product in his mind, and he was trying to make the cup according to the plan that he had in his mind. But we read that the cup was marred in the making. That is, there was something in the clay that resisted the hand of the potter. Now what did he do with that marred cup that was made? We would have expected him to throw it away, but he did not. 
He made it again. What a gospel that is for failing and sinful men like ourselves. How glorious it is that when we resist God's purpose and we all but wreck ourselves, God doesn't throw us away. He'll make us again. And truly, we would be a hopeless race, but for the fact that we have a mighty God who is able to remake us even when we've rebelled against Him. Yes, and have thwarted His blessed plans for us. He made it again. But notice this. He made it again another vessel, a different vessel. He changed His plan for this latter vessel. And He realized that He couldn't make it according to that fine ideal that he originally had in his mind. That one refused to realize the best, therefore he made it into another vessel. He sought to make it realize the second best. And there's a truth of tremendous importance here, friends, that we're prone to forget. And the truth is that after we have rejected and resisted God for days, for months, for years, listen, God cannot make of us what he could have made if we had entered into his plans from the beginning. And if you reject God's best for you, then he tries to get you to realize the second best. And of course, if you reject that, then he tries to bring you to the next best. But remember this, God cannot in the very nature of things make as much out of a fraction of a life as he can out of a whole of a life. Now suppose the clay upon which the potter had been working was marred again. Well, again, he would have undertaken to have made it into another vessel. But all the while he's working with that clay, don't you see it becomes less and less plastic, less and less uh, subservient to his purposes. And all the while it's going to be more and more difficult for the potter to shape it according to his purpose. And then the time would inevitably come when it would no longer be being shaped at all. And then what would be the result? All you have to do to determine that is to step out in the potter's backyard. And there in potter's field around you lies broken pottery and shattered earthenware. Why is it there? Not because the potter made vessels for the stupid purpose of just breaking them to pieces. They're there because there was something in the clay that so resisted the hand of the potter that he was able to make nothing of them but these shattered and misshapen and broken pieces of pottery. Now that's the story of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God had a noble purpose in this man's life to begin with. And he gave him every opportunity. He brought to bear upon Pharaoh all that infinite love and mercy could bring to bear. To get Pharaoh to be a good man. The reason Pharaoh ended as he did is not because God didn't love him. Not because God didn't do his infinite best to save him. It was because Pharaoh resisted and resisted and rebelled and rebelled till at last... He threw himself a corpse upon a seashore in a distant land. And the message we hear from his clammy lips is this. Look at me and see what a terrible thing it is to rebel against God. Behold me and see the tragic failure of the man that persistently throws himself in wicked madness against the plans and the purposes of the Lord God Almighty. 
Look now how hard God tried to make something of Pharaoh. In the first place, he gave him a great and a faithful minister. Pharaoh had the privilege of knowing Moses, one of the greatest men and one of the greatest leaders that has ever graced the face of the earth. He had an opportunity of hearing about the greatest individual the world has ever seen. He threw himself away, did Pharaoh. He chose God's worst instead of God's best, but he didn't do it because he didn't know better. No, he chose God's worst instead of God's best. Neither are you wasting your life because you don't know better if you are. If you've not had a teacher as great as Moses, still you've been warned, haven't you? And in your sin, you're without excuse. Well, God gave Pharaoh a chance to cooperate with him, to help him in saving Israel, in making Israel of a great nation. Moses' first word to Pharaoh was this, The God of Israel saith, Let my people go. Now Pharaoh's answer to this demand was haughty enough. He answers, Who is the God of Israel? I do not know him. And he didn't know God, even though he might have known him. But you know, God didn't throw him away after this one chance. On the contrary, he gave Pharaoh an ample opportunity to know him. And with this end in view, God brought his infinite energies into play. Wonder after wonder, he worked in the presence of Pharaoh by the hand of Moses. And at first, these wonders were imitated by the magicians. These fakes, with their cunning ways, made it easy for Pharaoh to resist God for a while. You see, they helped the king to close his royal eyes to the truth. They helped him start on his decision of rebellion. But the magicians were soon outdone because Moses began to perform wonders that they couldn't imitate. And they themselves were forced to believe in the presence and the might and the reality of God Jehovah. And they who had helped their king to go wrong tried to turn him to the right way by their acknowledgement of the truth. They said, it's the finger of God. You know, it's easier to lead a man astray, though, than it is to lead him back. And it's easier for you, by your godless and worldly life, to lead your children to despise Christ and the church than it is to lead them back after they've gone astray. Pharaoh listened to the magicians when they counseled him to do wrong, but he turned a deaf ear to them when they counseled him to do right. Then followed that series of plagues upon Egypt that were always preceded by the demand of God through the lips of Moses. Let my people go that they may serve me. You see what God was demanding of Pharaoh. Listen. It's the same demand that he makes of you and me, and that is complete and utter obedience to his will. That's all. He's commanding us to surrender ourselves to him, to enter into his plan and purpose for our lives. And the one thing that God wanted was the one thing that Pharaoh did not want. But he was becoming afraid, and so he proposed to compromise, finally. Pharaoh, in his fright, tells Moses that, he will obey. He will let the people go. That is, he said, I will let part of them go. 
I'll let the men go. But you leave the children here. Pharaoh knew so long as he kept the children in Egypt. That's how long he would keep Israel in Egypt. And the devil knows today that just as long as our homes remain unchristian, just that long will the world remain unchristian. Now I want to tell you something, folks. We'll never evangelize the world by simply seeking to save an adult generation. We must give a God a chance that our children or the cause of righteousness is going to be defeated. We know that. Oh, if we'd kept all of our children, the church would be three or four times as large as it is today. But you know, if we will save the child, we'll save the world. Then Pharaoh offered a second compromise after that was rejected. He said, I'll let you and the children go, but you must leave your cattle and your sheep. You must leave all your flocks and your herds. Oh yes, you can go into Canaan if you will, but leave your business in Egypt. And you know the devil today is like that. He's perfectly willing that you and I be just as pious as we want to be on Sunday, provided we get a, forget all about it on Monday, you see. He's willing for you to be religious if you can find your religion to the church. But I want to tell you something a religion that doesn't permeate and purify and uplift and sanctify business and business relations is not the religion of Jesus Christ. Now I'll tell you something else. If I had a kind of a business that I couldn't mix the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ with it, I'd change my business. If I had the kind of pleasure that I couldn't mix the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ with it, I'd change my recreation habits. Yes, sir. Then Pharaoh said, Well, I'll let the people go, but they must not go far. Why was that? For the very human reason that he wanted the opportunity of getting them back. He said, I'll obey God, but I don't want to, make to, uh, I don't want to promise to make that obedience permanent. You see, I want to be where I can be within easy reach of them. And you've seen plenty of instances of that. Here's a man who decides that he wants to be a Christian, but he doesn't want to be a member of the church. He wants to see how he gets along first. You know, that kind of a man is already making provision for going back. Take up thy bed, Jesus said to that paralyzed man over there that the four brought to him. Take up thy bed and walk. He wants us to make a complete break with the past. And unless we do, we're not going to make a success of living the Christian life. But then the plagues grow worse. Pharaoh is becoming more and more frightened. And while the scare is on, he promises to be good and to obey the Lord unconditionally. There was a terrible storm, you remember. The hailstones fell like shrapnel. The lightning dropped from the clouds and played along the earth. And terror ripped Pharaoh's heart. He sent for Moses. And when Moses comes, he tells him, I've sinned this time. I will let the people go. But oh, when the, when the storm ceases and the sun shines through, then he's quite ashamed of his weakness. And he's so ashamed that he forgets altogether the promise that he's made when the fear of death was upon him. This is a side of human nature that's a little bit disgusting to any gospel preacher. 
and to any right-thinking person, yet we dare not shut our eyes to it. There are many people who have acted for all the world as Pharaoh acted, and they've done it with all of the life that he had and even more. You know, I don't know of a man who is more in danger of being ultimately lost than that man who never cares for religion except when he's badly scared. Because the truth of the matter is that a man of that kind doesn't care anything about the goodness of God at all. Not even in his moments of most abject terror does he truly want to be saved. He just simply wants to escape the results of sin, that's all. He doesn't want to pay the penalty for doing wrong. He wants to defeat the ends of justice. Why, he's not interested in being good and pure and true. He's just interested in keeping out of hell, that's all. How patient God was with Pharaoh. We're amazed at it until we think how infinitely patient he's been with us. By storm, by black night, by adversity after adversity, God is doing his best to bring Pharaoh back from the Red Sea. He's doing all he can to turn him away from committing suicide in body and soul. But Pharaoh's like some of us. Pharaoh seemed absolutely greedy for damnation. He seemed completely bent on working out his own destruction. And after the king had broken one vow after another, and had lied and lied and lied again, God brought the last dark providence into his life. He made one final effort to save him from his ruin. Pharaoh was called to kneel by the coffin of his firstborn son, and his hard heart seemed softened at last. By the grave of the crown prince, he made a solemn vow that he would obey God. And he set about putting the vow into execution at once. The children of Israel were not only allowed to go, but they were hurried out of the land of Egypt. At last, at last, we say, with what infinite expense the man is brought to obey God. But would you believe it? The grass hadn't even grown green on the grave of his boy until he forgets his vow and turns back to the old life again. Oh, what a grip, sin gets on us. How blind we become if we persistently and, and uh, continually refuse to follow the light. So Pharaoh brushed the tears out of his eyes, gathered his army, and set out after the departing host of Israel. And I see the hustle and the hurry of setting out. I see the look of hate on the king's face as he comes within sight of his one-time slaves Probably he laughs a mirthless laugh as he sees their predicament. Oh, I have them now. They're shut in on either side. On either side there's a trackless wilderness. Before them is the Red Sea and behind them is me and my army. What sweet revenge he's going to have. But look, something has happened. There's a path through the Red Sea. These hunted slaves are marching in. Oh, but it doesn't matter because wherever Israel can go, the Egyptians can go. So he and his army march in behind. They keep the Israelites in sight. And now in the distance they see that the last Israelite has reached dry land. But look, there's a great shriek and the seas collapse. The waters have come together again. The waves soar about these struggling soldiers like liquid hate. The king is forgotten. 
His men are madly trying to save themselves. A jeweled hand flashes in the light for a moment. There's an oath, a cry, a gulp, and then silence. And the hungry sea has its, its prey. Pharaoh, why are you here? And if those dead lips could speak, he would say this. I'm here because I persistently refuse to obey God. He offered me the best. And I spurned it and spurned it again until last. He had no option but to throw me here. He did it because I made it impossible for him to do anything else. And as I look at this wreck upon the sands of the seashore, I think how different the story might have ended. Oh, listen, this man could have had a part in the making of Israel of a great nation. He might have been associated with Moses in giving this new nation to the world. He might even now be in the, in the fellowship of Moses among the tall sons of the morning. For the difference between this man and the great man Moses is the fact that God purposed, is, is uh, not in the fact that God purposed evil for one and good for the other. But it's rather in this that one was obedient to the heavenly vision, as the Apostle Paul would say, and the other was not obedient. The Apostle Paul could say, the grace that was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But this man resisted and resisted and kept resisting till he ran by every blockade that God had put in his path and he plunged headlong into destruction. Now this afternoon, let me tell you this, that God has put some blockades in your path to keep you from the pit of hell, to keep you from making terrible mistake with your lives. God's given us the Bible. He's given us the church. He's given us gospel preaching. He's given us sweet, encouraging songs that encourage us to obey the Lord and to do His will. He's given us brethren and sisters in Christ who pray for us. In many cases, He's given us a devout mother and father who encouraged us to live the Christian life and at last win the Christian's reward. This afternoon I may speak to someone who's never yet obeyed the gospel, who has resisted God's purpose and God's plan for you. Wouldn't you resist no longer? Wouldn't you yield yourself to the tender pleadings of the Son of God, who stood over there and even though he was rejected and rebuffed, still with outstretched arms and tender voice and beckoning hand, he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's what Jesus wants for you this afternoon. He wants you to be a part of that great company of the redeemed who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He wants you to have a part in that, in that city that hath foundations, that old Abraham was looking for back yonder when he said he searched for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. I don't know how you stand with God this afternoon. The Apostle Paul said, No man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him. So I don't know what's in your mind. I don't know what your spiritual stance with God is. But there are two people that do know, and that's God and you. You know whether or not, believing on the Lord, you have ever repented of your sins. 
That means you changed your mind and set your face toward heaven and home. You know whether or not you've ever stood before men and confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And you know whether you've ever been baptized for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And if you haven't done those things, then you stand at a guilty distance from God and you need to obey Him while time and opportunity affords. Maybe I'll speak to those who have erred in some respect, who need very much to make wrongs right. There's a guilty distance between you and God, and that won't be resolved until that matter is cleared up. Repent of those wrongs, confess them, and seek God's forgiveness. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.